Our gracious, merciful, loving Father, thank you that you are such a merciful God, that you would reveal yourself to us in your word. And we ask, Lord, that as we study your word today, that Christ would be glorified, that we would see our need for Christ, and that we would live lives more fully devoted to him, not for our glory, but for his glory. And so as we turn to your word, we ask that the Holy Spirit would do his work in us of working in conjunction with your word, convicting us, showing us where we are in error, showing us our great need for grace, that we would run to Christ for that grace and that he would be glorified in our lives. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to Psalm 15. Um, most of you probably remember, we, uh, we do a psalm for the first Sunday of every month. Um, and today we're going to be continuing our study in the Psalms by looking at Psalm 15. Now, we didn't have a psalm study that we did last month. Two months ago, the last psalm that we studied was Psalm 13. So if you're wondering why I skipped Psalm 14, don't worry. We're going to come back to it next April. Uh, and that seems appropriate since April starts off with April Fool's Day. And Psalm 14 starts off by declaring that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So, seems appropriate. We'll, we'll wait to do Psalm 14 until April. So today we're going to be looking at Psalm 15. And as you glance at this, you're going to see that this is a very small psalm. It's a very succinct, very short psalm. But I think we're all going to see today that this is a very convicting psalm. And it's a psalm that will send us straight to the cross. It's a short psalm, but sometimes dynamite comes in small packages. So I think we'll all benefit greatly from this, and this will be edifying for us. The way that this psalm is structured is very simple. It's very straightforward. The psalmist, who is King David, spends the majority of the psalm just providing the answer to a question that he uses to begin the psalm. So he starts off by asking a question. He spends the rest of the psalm just answering the question. Now we have to understand, as we do this, that when we ask questions, questions uh, are, are natural to us. We, we all ask questions. We have to understand that there's something within us that, uh, that yearns to grow in knowledge, that yearns to understand how things around us are, how things around us work. We instinctively desire to learn and to grow in our understanding. I mean, as children, we, we asked our parents all kinds of questions. The most common one is probably why. You know, and then the answer, you know, comes, and then the question to that is why, and, you know, you have an, an eternal string of whys, right? But as children, we all asked questions, commonly, all the time, and as we grew older and wiser, at least ideally grew wiser, we started realizing that because gathering information is important, we want to make sure we're gathering the right information, and to gather the right information you have to ask the right questions. So asking the right questions is very, very important. If you buy a house, 
You want to make sure that you are asking questions, and not just any question, but asking the right questions. If you come across a friend who is distraught or or crying, uh, you may need to ask questions to find out what's going on with them, but you want to make sure that you're asking the right questions. If you want to enter into some sort of business partnership with somebody, you need to make sure that the potential partner and you are on the same page, and to determine that, you want to ask the right questions to make sure you're, all, you're both working toward the same goal. See, when it comes to the most important things in life, we understand that we want to not only ask questions, but we want to ask important questions. We want to ask the right questions. And that's part of what it means to have wisdom and to have maturity. But with all the examples that I, that I just gave you, I mean, there's an infinite number of examples The reality is that in 100 years, those questions aren't going to mean a whole lot. In 100 years, the answers to those questions, as good as those questions might be, aren't going to be very significant. So if wisdom would deem it necessary and wise to ask the right questions about things that aren't going to matter for very long, how much more necessary is it to ask questions? the right questions about things that will last for all eternity. And this is what brings us to the most wonderful thing about Psalm 15. It begins by asking the single most important question that any person at any time in any place could ever possibly ask. A question that goes beyond just here and now. A question that goes from the here and now unto eternity, dealing with matters of eternity. And that's the question that we see in verse 1. So let's look at Psalm 15, verse 1 together. It's a psalm of David. And the psalmist says, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Now, it might be tempting when we read that question to think that David is talking about uh, visiting the tabernacle Uh, But that is not the tent that David is referring to. And we can be sure of that because the average person wasn't allowed to go inside of the tent of the tabernacle. Only the priests uh, were allowed to even come near to the tent of meeting. And only the high priest uh, was allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies. Numbers 18.22 specifically instructed this. God said, the sons of Israel shall not come near the tent of meeting again or they will bear sin and die. So David was not talking about that tent. He's not talking about the tent of meeting when he asks this question. No, David is asking a much deeper, much bigger question here. He's asking who could ever possibly be qualified? Who could ever possibly be allowed to enter into and to dwell forever in God's presence in heaven? There is not a more important question that a person could possibly ever ask. This is more important than asking yourself, you know, what do I want to do with my life for a career? This is more important than asking what kind of training you'll need in order to have the career that you are striving for. This is the ultimate question. This is the pinnacle of all questions. What do I have to do to please God sufficiently To please God enough that he would allow me to dwell in his presence 
forever in heaven. But David doesn't leave us to our own imaginations to try to figure it out. David doesn't just let us wonder and wander on this. He's going to spend the rest of the psalm giving us the answer to this question. And the answer will actually cover every single aspect of a person's life. If you want to know what a life that pleases God looks like, look no further. It's right here in this very short, very succinct psalm in the verses that follow. Let me start by saying from the outset, however, that without God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word, we would have no objective way of knowing what pleases God. We would only imagine God as our hearts desire him to be, which would be a billion miles away from where the scriptures actually tell us God is how God is, who God is, what pleases God, what doesn't please God, our imaginations would run wild on this, and there would be no objective answer without God's holy inspired word. And the masses actually validate this for us, because while they reject the authority of the scriptures, and they live however they want, most people think they're going to heaven when they die. As Charles Spurgeon notes of this question, he says, the unthinking may imagine it to be a very easy matter to approach the Most High, end quote. But we know that this is simply not the case because his word reveals for us that this is not the case. The truth is that the answer to this question, who is qualified to go to heaven and live in God's presence forever? The question to this, or the answer to this question is absolute. There are not multiple right answers on this, as if God's standards are subject to change from one moment to the next. No, his standards are absolute and unchanging. And that's what this psalm reveals very succinctly, that the standards that God requires for a person to go to heaven are absolute, and they're revealed right here in this psalm. The answer starts with a man or woman's personal character, but it also includes our speech. It also includes our conduct. It includes our values and even the way that we both earn and use the money that we have. So let's move on to Psalm 15 verse 2, just the first part. He writes, this is, this is the answer. He says, he who walks with integrity and works righteousness. Let's just stop there and deal with those two things. These are two things. This is Hebrew poetry. These things run parallel to each other. But it starts with walking in integrity. Now, the English word integrity might be defined as uh, the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles or moral uprightness. But that would force us to ask yet another question, and that is how much moral uprightness, how much integrity does God actually require uh, for a person to go to heaven? Um, where does he draw the line? Where, where is the line that God draws? Is it just arbitrary? Does it vary from one person to the next? No, it doesn't. Uh, the, the Hebrew word actually has stronger connotations than the English word integrity has. The Hebrew word is the word that often gets translated as without blemish. For example, we find this word in Exodus 12.5 when God instructs the Israelite, your lamb shall be an unblemished 
male, a year old. But this word can also, depending on the context, be translated as sincere or genuine. In this context, David is referring to somebody who doesn't just go through the motions. He's talking about somebody who doesn't just put on an outward act. He's he's authentic. He's a genuine person. The person that you see outwardly really is the person he is inwardly. His outward behavior lines up with who he is inwardly. You might say that there is just no deception on his part. He is who he is. They truly are as they appear to be. Now, having integrity here means that the walk that you have with God is the same outwardly as the one that you have inwardly. You're you're not just putting on a show. You're not just acting righteous depending on who you're in front of. No, whether you're uh, in private or whether you're with a group of people, whether you're with Christians or whether you're with pagans, your behavior doesn't change. You just are who you are. Who you are inwardly is who you are outwardly. It indicates somebody who, who strives to uphold all the commandments of God, not just on Sunday morning when they go to church. No, he's the same person on Saturday night as he is on Sunday morning. When he goes to church, the language that he uses with his church family is the same kind of language that he uses with his clients throughout the week. But his desire to uphold all the commandments of God isn't just kind of an intangible thing. It's not a root that bears no fruit. No, David says after this, he says he works righteousness. He works righteousness. So the counterpart of this first part, he who, he who walks with integrity, the, the counterpart here is that he doesn't just talk the talk, he also walks the walk. He's not upright inwardly and yet not active with his moral uprightness outwardly. To the contrary, his actions line up with his uprightness. To use the the parable of the Good Samaritan, the man who will dwell in the presence of the Lord forever is the person who doesn't walk on the other side of the road when he sees somebody who's in need. Instead, he cares for his neighbor. He feeds the hungry. He gives water to the thirsty, and so on and so forth. And he does it all not for personal glory, but for the glory of God alone. He lives out what he claims to believe. To use biblical language, this is a man who understands that faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Listen very closely to what James wrote, because James was saying uh, that this is what a person who knows and is known by God does. He writes in chapter 2, verses 14 to 17 of James' epistle. He says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of, them, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. So what David is saying here is that the person whom God will allow to dwell forever with him in heaven is the kind of person whose actions line up with what the person claims to believe. It's a faith that works. This person doesn't have a disconnect between who they are inwardly and who they are outwardly. They don't have a disconnect between what they claim to believe and what they actually believe. 
And this is the first answer to the ultimate question. But it's definitely not the only answer. David continues by showing us that the answer also relates to how a person uses their tongue. So let's look at the second part of verse 2 and the first part of verse 3. David writes, And speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue. Now, it's entirely possible that this is supposed to be seen as something of a contrast with the fool of Psalm 14, who says in his heart that there is no God. Such a person is a fool because he knows that he's lying to himself. He speaks lies to his heart when he says that there is no God, and he knows it. He knows it. He deceives himself intentionally because he knows that there is a God. Everybody knows that there is a God. But what does man do with that knowledge? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that the natural man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. He, he tries to hold it down. He'd rather not deal with that truth because if he did, he'd have to change. He, he, he loves his sins so much, he suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. Now, Let's understand that there are various degrees of suppressing the truth. I mean, yeah, there will be some who say, oh, I don't believe that there's a God. Some will go all that way and, and deny God's existence altogether. But others will only suppress the truth enough to keep themselves comfortable. They'll suppress the fact maybe that, that God is holy. They'll suppress the fact that God is, is righteous and that his wrath burns against the wicked. They'll suppress the fact that God hates sin. Why would they do these things? So that they can go on sinning comfortably, of course. But the person whom God will allow to dwell in his tent, in his heaven forever, does not lie to his heart in this way. He does not lie to himself in this way. This person speaks truth in their heart. So this person's heart aligns with what Scripture reveals to be true, rather than suppressing it and thereby rejecting what is true. When God's word contradicts what he feels or what he thinks, he's quick to change his mind. He has the courage to change his mind, mind and to yield to God's word. He, he also doesn't have uh, an overinflated ego. He, instead, he's a very humble person because he has an accurate perspective of himself. A, a proud person is somebody who lies to their heart. Who, who has a, a small idea of God and a big idea of themselves, convincing themselves that they're bigger and better and more deserving than they really are. But this person that David is describing, this person understands the truth about himself. He understands his heart. He understands how reluctant his heart is to embrace what is true. But that is what makes this person trustworthy. The fact that he recognizes that about himself and yet speaks truth in his heart. But we have to understand something about the heart, and that is that it's reflected in what comes out of our mouths. Right? Jesus, remember what he said to the Pharisees? He said, you brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. It's from Matthew twelve thirty four. And so with that in mind, what happens when the heart is regularly fed a steady diet of truth? Truth will be what proceeds from his mouth. 
And so with that said, the other side of this truth, that the person who pleases God will be a person whose heart uh, speaks truth or is filled with truth, is that this person will not be a slanderer. David says he does not slander with his tongue. Now, of course, that is absolutely, unquestionably true, but we should also recognize that we don't only speak with our literal, physical tongues in our mouths. In our day and age, uh, some people do more speaking electronically, uh, through text messages, or through social media, or through writing blogs. So this principle certainly applies to all of those types of speaking as well. And in our day and age especially, where everybody's on social media, we would do really well to keep this in mind. But once again, let's consider what James had to say about this. He writes in James 1.26, he writes, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. And he goes on to write this in James chapter 3, verses 5-8. to He says, The tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest, how, how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, and the, fi- and the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. One of the things I've learned as I've grown older and wiser, hopefully, is that there is a lot of slander out there. It is so easy to slander somebody, to speak falsely about somebody, and there's a ton of slander, especially on social media. I mean tons. Maybe because there's no direct oversight, nobody's really keeping count, nobody's really holding anybody else accountable. I I don't know, but it is the easiest and it's the most common place for it to happen in our day and age. It's part of what makes social media, uh, at least potentially, such a toxic, dangerous place. A dangerous place, especially for, for children who don't have the wisdom, who don't have the life experience, to know how to handle when they themselves are slandered or when they see somebody else being slandered. It's so prevalent. Slander is so prevalent in our day and age. It would just be easy for us to take the attitude that, well, it's just part of life. You know, slander is, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, everybody does it. It's par for the course, we might think. It's just the way it is. But we should understand that God takes slander very, very seriously. What's the ninth commandment? The ninth commandment is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Slander starts with that. But it goes further in that it adds an aspect of malice. It's, it's malicious. It's a deliberate attempt to verbally harm somebody's character, to verbally harm somebody's reputation. The person whose life is pleasing to God, on the other hand, the person who, whom God will allow to dwell in his presence forever in heaven, doesn't do this. But wait, there's more. Let's look at the second part of verse 3. It says, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. 
Now, obviously, there's a difference between a neighbor and a friend. They're both people, but somebody, a friend is one that you trust. A neighbor is who? It's anybody, right? I mean, there's only a fine line, honestly, between seeking to harm somebody verbally with slander and seeking to harm somebody in some sort of physical way. And that's the direction that this invariably will go. It moves from a person's mouth to their actions. Because what comes out of the heart, or what comes out of the mouth, is what's in the heart. The person who's inclined to speak evil words will also be inclined to do evil actions, to perform evil actions. But who is my neighbor? Who is your neighbor? I mean, Jesus answered that, again, with the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's anyone, it's everyone that you come into contact with, including your enemies. So David is saying that the person whose life pleases God does nothing to intentionally seek the harm of his neighbor, either verbally or in some way physically. The kind of person, this kind of person not only doesn't slander his neighbor, he doesn't steal from his neighbor. He doesn't uh, seek to harm his neighbor by, by physically assaulting him. Uh, he, he doesn't covet his neighbor's possession. He doesn't abuse the law to force his neighbor to pay for things that he wants. This is, by the way, why we regularly go to Planned Parenthood and protest abortion uh, outside of Planned Parenthood because the children in the womb are our neighbors. They are our neighbors, and they don't themselves uh, don't have a voice, so they are actually our most vulnerable neighbors. And yet we live in a society that's filled with people who are more than willing to not only do evil to these neighbors in the womb, but to do the most vile evil to our most vulnerable, innocent neighbors. Now the question is this then, are you the kind of person who seeks the best interest of your neighbor? of everyone you come into contact with. Because the person who would do evil to his neighbor is also the kind of person who would take up reproach against his friend. They both flow from the same things going on in the heart. They both flow from the same self-centered, me-first mentality. On the other hand, selflessness produces loyalty. And loyalty is one of the elements that produces deep and meaningful friendships in life. And friendships help to shape who you and I are as individuals, right? We, we need friendships. It's not good that we would be alone, that we would be isolated and have nobody in whom we can confide or trust. And who better to hold you accountable than a friend? Somebody who likes you, somebody who loves you, somebody who's looking out for your best interests. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. In other words, it's better for us to be wounded by a friend than it is to be kissed by our enemy. Why is that? It's because a friend would only wound you because you needed to be wounded. They're willing to speak difficult truths, painful truths, hard truths to you for the sake of encouraging you and for the sake of what's best for you. So the person whose life pleases God wouldn't dare to harm their neighbor 
and they wouldn't even think of betraying a friend. They would be loyal to a friend until the end. I mean, we can, the first example that, that pops into my mind as I think about that is Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus after following him for three years. He was never truly a friend of Jesus. Judas was, was only loyal to one person, and that was himself. He was self-serving. He was a me-first type of person. He was self-centered. And David is saying, not so of the righteous, not so of the person whom God will allow to dwell in his presence in heaven for all of eternity. But he continues. Verse 4, he says, In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. What is, first of all, a reprobate? The ESV translates this with, what might, with a word that might be a little bit easier to understand. The, the wording there is, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. Literally translated, the word for reprobate means a rejected person. Specifically, a person who has rejected God and has been rejected by God. And I realize that that sounds really harsh, but this is David's way of saying that the person whose life is pleasing to God will hate the things that God hates, that their values will align with God's values. Their perception toward things and their feeling toward things is all in accord with God's perception and feelings toward those very things. See, the righteous aren't enticed They're not drawn to those who love and who practice and who encourage wickedness and unrighteousness. The fact is that just as God is revolted by evil, so too you and I should be revolted by evil, by every demonstration, every practice of evil. This is why James insisted in James 4.4 that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. But if it's true that our, that our attitudes and our perceptions align with God's, then we'll not only hate what he hates, we'll also love what he loves. And beyond that, we'll also honor those who fear the Lord. Do you see how these two things go hand in hand? See, we shouldn't only hate what God hates, but we should love what he loves. He loves and honors those who fear him. There might be no place where this becomes more of an issue in our day and age than in what we choose to be entertained by and whom we choose to be entertained by. I've had good Christian brothers and sisters recommend movies and TV shows that are filled with all sorts of profanity and nudity. I mean, and, and I'm a pastor, uh, so if they're recommending this stuff to me, what are, what are they recommending to everybody else? I, I personally just feel revolted by those things. And by the way, in a TV show or in a movie or, or in music, if a person is taking the Lord's name in vain, that is the ultimate uh, the ultimate form of foul or profane speech. The fact that somebody would use the name of the Lord in place of a curse word is just beyond foul. We should have no tolerance for that as it relates to entertainment. Those things don't please God. Those things should not please or entertain us. 
Now, I think it's pretty safe to say, as we've gone through this very succinct checklist here in Psalm 15, I think it's safe to say that if the question is, who is qualified to dwell forever in God's presence in heaven? The answer is, not me. Nobody. Nobody is qualified. I fall short of, of just about all of these requirements to, to one degree or the other, and so do you. In fact, we all do. Anyone who denies that isn't being honest with themselves. God gave us, in his word, he gave us 613 commands. That's a, a really high bar to, to jump over, right? Could, could he lower it some? I mean, how many would he actually have to give us to convince us that we can't live up to his holy and righteous standards and thus we can't qualify ourselves to live and dwell in his presence in heaven forever? He wouldn't have to give us 613. How about 11 or 12? Which is what we find in this psalm. I mean, even if I strive to do all these things, I still do them imperfectly. Anyone who strives to do these things still does them imperfectly. We, we don't fulfill what God requires. David says to God in Psalm 143, he says, In your sight, no man is living righteous. Paul writes of humanity's dilemma in, three, in Romans 3.10. He says, there is none righteous, not even one. Who, who lives up to the standards here in Psalm 15? Not even one of us. And not only do we not live up to it, we don't even come close if we're being honest. See, when a person looks at the Bible, looks at what it says about what pleases God, when a person considers God's law and sees how they measure up to what God's law requires, it doesn't take long for a person to realize that they don't measure up. That the standard, no matter how low you set it, is still too high. It's impossible. They can't measure up. And so... Their only hope is to plead for mercy. To plead for mercy. And the good news is that God offers mercy. He sent His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who did measure up to all these things. Because He was not only fully man, but He was also fully God. He's the only one who could and the only one who did live up to God's holy standards of the man whose life is pleasing and acceptable to God and therefore qualified to dwell in his presence forever. He always did what was right. He never strayed from the Father's will. Not for one nanosecond did he stray from the Father's will. And for you and I, we haven't had one nanosecond of our lives in which we have lived up to his will. Let's start with the greatest commandment, that we would love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. How many nanoseconds have you spent doing that? Zero. It doesn't matter how low you set the bar. We fall short. But Jesus never did. He always did the Father's will. He always did what God required. Only Jesus measures up 
to God's standards of righteousness and only Jesus is qualified to dwell in the presence of God forever. But the good news is that while you and I and everyone has fallen short, God offers mercy. God offers grace. God offers forgiveness, redemption, adoption as sons and daughters to all who will repent and believe in Jesus Christ. How does he do that? And yet, remain a just judge. Because he takes our sins away from us and he puts them on Christ. And he takes Christ's perfect righteousness and he puts it on us. It's an exchange. He gets our dirt. We get his gold. That's how God remains just. In this way, Christ's life of perfect, unblemished, sinless, moral uprightness and righteousness can be credited or imputed to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Friends, if you want to dwell forever in the presence of God in heaven, you must first see that you fall short of what God requires but you must then run to the cross. You must then see that Jesus is your only hope, friends. His life, his righteousness, his merit must be the merit on which you stand before God because only he has lived up to God's perfect, holy, righteous standards. And the wonderful truth is that when we come to Christ Jesus in faith, God causes all things to work together for the sake of conforming us to Christ's likeness. And so, while we don't measure up to these things perfectly, because we are in Christ and because God is causing us to grow in Christ's likeness, we start to reflect all these attributes more and more. There will be a day when we stand before him in heaven And the inclinations of our flesh will be taken away. They'll be removed from us. And we'll do these things perfectly. But again, it's all by grace. It's all by God's grace. He will not only grow us in these virtues on this side of glory. He'll not only grow us in Christ's likeness. But he also promises an eternity in his dwelling place in heaven with him for all who will come to Christ in faith. Let's pray. Our most gracious and forgiving God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it reveals so clearly, so succinctly, how far we fall short of your standards how far we fall short of qualifying based on our merit to dwell in your presence forever. And we confess to you that if we were left to our own apart from your grace, Lord, we would only grow in all these vices and and non-virtues, that we would become less and less like Christ. But because you are causing all things to work together for those who are in Christ, that we would grow in Christ's likeness. We grow in accordance with your plans 
in accordance with what you have ordained and decreed in your word. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for redemption. Thank you for adopting us as your sons and daughters. Not that there's anything in us that qualifies us, but you have imputed the merit of Christ, the perfect righteousness of Christ to your people in order that we may qualify to spend forever with you in your presence for the glory of Christ. We pray that on this side of glory, Lord, we would grow in Christ's likeness. Help us, Lord, to do that. We recognize that apart from your grace working in us, apart from the Holy Spirit working in us and convicting us and teaching us and growing us, we would be prone to wander. So we pray, Lord, that on this side of glory, that we would be light, salt and light in a dark world around us, all for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.